Welcome to C-Suite Radio. Welcome to the Open Mic Podcast with your host, Brett Allen. Join us each week as Brett interviews extraordinary and amazing people. At the Open Mic, no topic is off limits, and you never know who will drop by. Now, here is your host, Brett Allen. What's up, everybody? Welcome into another episode of the Open Mic Podcast. Brett Allen here, coming at you live from the Bay Area Studios. And man, oh man, do we have a banger of an episode for you today. I am so excited about this. Just breathe. Just breathe. My guest today is Lisa Lampanelli. That's right. Lisa Lampanelli, the former queen of mean, now known as the queen of meaning, dropped by the other day. And this episode was so much fun. One of the most exciting and hilarious conversations that I've ever had. I can't even believe that she's on our show. It's just absolutely, absolutely mind-blowing. And I feel like every interview I've ever done for the last two years has led up to this. I feel like this is a moment of validation for me. And I just want to say thank you to every single person who listens and every single person and every single fellow podcaster who supports me. This episode is for you. You have encouraged me. You have challenged me. You have made me who I am, and this episode is dedicated to all of you. Eric Conley, Joe Pardo, Larry Roberts, Tyson Franklin, the list goes on and on. Everybody who has supported me, Jody Kringle, I can't thank all of you enough. I've forgotten names. I know I have, but this episode was an absolute blast. Thoughts and prayers, of course, to everybody who is still dealing with this COVID-19. I feel like This is one of the most challenging moments for us in our country. And yet, we all have seemed to just join together and just really hunker down, trusting our government, trusting our leadership. And I just want to say that before I play this interview. I know that's a big no-no, introducing your guests and then going into a conversational tirade. (laughs) But I really feel compelled to say this. Again, thanks to everybody who has supported me from the very beginning, We pray for our country, and we just hope that we get out of this situation soon. Anyway, without further ado, here is my amazing and fantastic guest, Lisa Lampanelli. Welcome to the Open Mic Podcast. It's good to have you here today. Oh, you are more than welcome. I'm so bored in quarantine, I'm even doing your dumb show. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate that. So how are you doing? How are you handling all of this right now? What's going on in your world as far as managing the quarantine and all of that sort of thing. Well, what's crazy about it is the first couple of weeks were a little hard because I don't like to do anything people tell me to do. So I was having trouble resisting the rebellion to go outside because I built the whole career and life on being rebellious. And I'm like, wait a minute, but I can't do that because it's not about me right now. And then in the last week, it's weird. I got my head around the whole thing and I'm having so much more peace and fun I'm just like, I like my house, I like my dogs, I like the people I talk to on the phone, and I'm like, oh, like, this isn't that bad. There is still some um, emotional ups and downs, but for the most part, whenever I think outside myself and go, all right, you know, I can help other people by doing their shows, or I can do cameos for charity, or I can write letters to people who have nobody right now, it makes me feel like, okay, this quarantine is teaching me something about myself. 
Yeah, I mean, for someone who has built their life around all of that, I can imagine it's very challenging for you. I know you're close to your family. Have you been even more in contact with them now since all of this has happened and just making sure that everybody is doing okay on that side as well? Well, yeah, you know, my mother's 90 years old. And um, the other day I went to see her because I bring her groceries once a week, you know, because, you know, that's what you should do. I stay about six feet apart from her. And I was noticing, I'm like, this broad looks younger every day of quarantine. I think it's because she doesn't have to deal with any of us. I think it's because she doesn't have to go out or feel the pressure to go to church or bingo or whatever these Catholic old ladies do. And I, she looks, she literally looked about 60 years old. And I was like, she's really strong. So I was very impressed by that. I'm also like more in touch with my brother who, um, is working from home. He works for ESPN at home. Now my sister's a teacher, so she's teaching from home. My nieces and nephews are all over the planet, including New Zealand and Alaska and LA. And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, it's, it's almost brought us together in a fun way of like keeping in touch through Instagram and anything necessary, any means necessary. And um, I don't know. I like it. I think those are things we have to remember afterwards is go keep that contact up because we shouldn't have dropped the ball in the first place. Yeah, I agree with you, Lisa. I do find it interesting that this is very unprecedented time in our country where literally everybody is on the same playing field. You know, it's not just Mm -hmm. one set of people or the other. We're all just kind of dealing with this together. And it's just crazy. Like I've seen such a surge in social media with celebrities like yourself, just going out there and just really connecting with people. And it's good too, that you're able to stay in touch with your family and go visit your mom. I know you're very close. Yeah. I mean, I am, I'm really lucky about um, 10 years or nine years ago, I bought a house close kind of 20 minutes from where she is just far enough, you know, but just close enough. So I was like, okay. And it was almost, I go, it's meant to be that I happen to be within driving distance like this. Yes. If I still lived in New York city, would I drive in? Of course. But you know, thank God I don't have to, if she needs anything, I could run over or my sister can, but it's really interesting the way we go, wow, um, everybody's sort of working together and picking up the ball. And I think, like you're right, quarantine is this great equalizer of we all now feel even a taste of what the disabled population feels or a taste of people who don't have the ability to get out of their homes for whatever reason that is. We are so privileged to have food to have a roof over our heads. I'm privileged to have two dogs that keep me company. I'm privileged to have phone service that I could afford. And it really, um, even getting a taste of ableism and being someone who hasn't given much of a thought to people who can't move out of their house, now I'm like, oh, I kind of get it. But on a small level, so I can have more empathy and uh, compassion for people who go through those things for the rest of their life. It doesn't end for them in a month. No, it doesn't. You know, for you and I, when this is over, hopefully sooner than later, you know, it's hard to tell with some of the information that we get uh, with our news. (laughs) So you have to choose selectively, I would say. But yeah, I mean, it's it's I really love that insight. That's super cool. Well, you know, I have a I have my best friend of 32 years. Actually, now it's 33 years. She's disabled and um, she can only leave her house about once a week. 
Um, and I was always like, I wonder why she's so depressed. I love my house. Like, I, I don't know why she'd be bummed out staying home. And then I'm like, oh, when you don't have a choice, it's not that much freaking fun. So um, now when she talks about it, I kind of go, well, I definitely have um, a little more insight into what you must go through. So I hope when, when this is over, we can all kind of still remember that. My fear is that I remember after September 11th when I lived in the city, at, two years after you know, 9-11, New York was like uh, so beautiful. Everyone was so nice to each other. And then after two years, we kind of went back to being our a-hole selves. <laughs> so I'm kind of hoping it lasts longer than that two years. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I do remember that specifically. And we just kind of bounced back pretty quickly and, and things were great. I haven't been into the city in a very long time, but uh, my experiences have been fairly positive when I have gone to visit and, and to see people. I've been following you on social media, and I know you've been going out a lot and posting videos. When you go out and people see you, do they come up to you? Do they ask you what you think about all of this? What What is kind of the common response for most people? Well, you know, I haven't gone out in public in a long time because of this thing. But before that, you know, I'm, I live in a weirdly small town, um, so people just kind of know me as me. But in the store the other day, you know, when we're social distancing, a, you know, I'm very conscious of the six feet apart, even though I'm buying my mother's groceries, I got to still say six feet apart. So some woman like yells across the store, Lisa Lampanelli, and I gave her the dirtiest look, and it only was because of the six feet thing. And then I was like, I wanted to find her after and yell at her and say, I'm sorry, I was a C word, but I was scared about social distancing. So I like bumping into people who know my comedy or know you know what I do now. And I think that's nice. So I have a lot of fun with it. I'm, I was never an unapproachable person. I'd always be the kind of person that, you know, if a husband would say, hey, Lisa, can you call my wife on the phone and call her the C word? I would always do it for fun. So you know, that's the kind of thing it's like, why not? Why not just be gracious and have a good time? And I never consider myself a big shot. So, you know, I'm just like everybody else. Well, you arguably had one of the hugest careers in comedy. And I'll be honest with you, when I emailed you and you agreed, I was excited. I was like, this is going to be a lot of fun. And of course, I like to do a lot of research. And although you're not super connected or, or doing stand up anymore, I did watch some of your bits on YouTube. And I, I was a little bit nervous. I was like, this is going to be a very interesting phone call. But I think, well, well, you're very lucky that you caught, uh, caught me post roast Lisa Lampanelli. Although like, um, you know, cause when I used to do interviews, it'd always be a lot of making fun and all my tonight shows and stuff were always me kind of doing the Rickles type thing with the, with Leno and, you know, all these people. So, you're lucky you caught me at the time where I'm not in the mood to yell at anybody anymore. Although I will tell you when people piss me off, that old Lisa comes out. So you're doing good so far. Oh, thank you. Well, I, I get little glimpses of it since we've been talking here, which I love. Do people, when they meet you, do they, let's say you go out to dinner or you're at a restaurant prior to all of this insanity. Do people just look at you and you can look at them and, they just you just know that they're expecting you to turn that part of you on because obviously it's a persona to a certain degree. But do, right. do they expect right. that from you at all, or or do you give them a little? Oh, taste? sometimes. Yeah, yeah, sometimes, and it's fun for it to come out in a fun way. If someone's like, you know, 
um, cool about it. They know it's nothing personal. And we just have fun with it. But, yeah, I mean, for the most part, uh, you know, I don't dislike, you know, that kind of humor. I think it's a lot of fun. I won't say anything, you know, racist or homophobic or anything like that anymore, but because it's misunderstood and I don't want that to ever be misunderstood. But um, I would still have fun ripping on people, you know, just as a as a pastime. So I think it's just when you have good enough friends, they always say you only roast the ones you love. So when you're out with a bunch of friends and just having a good time, yeah, you make fun and you have a, have a few laughs. But, yeah, for the most part, you know, it doesn't come out until uh, until it's it's necessary. Yeah, I, I had the privilege of going to see Anthony Jeselnik a couple years ago. He came out here to the Bay Area, and uh, he did a meet and greet. And it's the same type of thing, but it was funny because yeah. we were together. I was on a date, and she had been not super familiar with his comedy. <laughs> so right, right. she was quite shocked uh, at the show, but she liked it. I think he was, before he started... Uh, his special fire in the maternity ward. He was still working out his material, but we met him afterwards and man, he just had a heyday with both of us. And then he was like, Hey, I appreciate you guys coming out to my show. But I think, but I think it part of us, there's this innate thing that embraces that because it's, it's a moment that we wouldn't normally get anywhere else. Cause if anybody else did it, We'd be like, hey, you're being really rude, <laughs> but... Uh, well, that's why, that's why you know, it's a comedian who makes money at this versus some guy who's just nasty in public. Like, there is a talent and a warmth you have to have to be able to do insult comedy. And I think also as a woman, I had... Uh, I didn't have to... Uh, in words, my words were not softer, but um, with a, when a woman does it, it's a little more soft, like a tiny bit. So I think um, I was a little bit more able to get away with a whole lot of bad stuff, quote unquote, bad stuff and insults because they're like, oh, she doesn't mean it. And if the warmth comes through, that's all you need. It's not about words. It's about warmth. Wow. That's very profound. Do you still keep connected with that community at all? Any of your friends? Never. Never nope. really. I know. I never really had any comedy friends. Um I wasn't a hangout guy. I wasn't one who would hang and be, you know, teaming with people because when I came up in the clubs, nobody was particularly, excuse me, particularly nice. Um, not in the way of um, negative towards them, but, you know, I wasn't open really to um, taking a lot of ribbing off stage. I kept it on stage only. I didn't like hanging out and busting balls. I didn't think that was fun. Um, I'm overall really sensitive, so I didn't want to be involved with anything off stage that was nasty. Um, so, no, I didn't have a lot of comedy friends. Uh, I still love, you know, Jeff Ross, um, Jim Norton. Like, there are a few who, like, if I texted right now, they'd be um, amazing. Jim Florentine. Um, but a lot of the guys, for the most part, weren't my type. So, um and, you know, at a moment's notice, I could probably text Amy Schumer or Kathy Griffin or Sarah Silverman and have them help me with something in an emergency. But um, I didn't have a lot of close comedy friends, but the people I named are people who would help me out in a pinch. So um, I'm lucky to have that because I'm like, wow, for people I never worked with a lot, these people have big hearts and they would be willing to help with any cause I had or whatever. Um, I'm more 
bonded with people outside the industry and people who I don't have industry friends. I have friends from childhood or my teen years or my 20s and then friends that I've made outside the business in the last 15 years for the most part. Very cool. Now, you grew up with two siblings. Your dad worked at Sikorsky Aircraft. And if I'm correct, your mom was a police dispatcher, right? So you grew up in a fairly normal home. Um, Oh, yeah. Normal Italian, loud, uh, food addicted. Yeah, all that. Did they have any kind of influence on you as far as when you were growing up, like what you wanted to do? Because from what I understand, comedy wasn't really on the radar at that time, right? You were looking at doing other things besides comedy and then you made the jump later, right? Yeah, comedy would have never dawned on me because I didn't even really know it existed because one thing we would do, we would watch the Dean Martin roast and we loved those and they were on, I think, NBC on a Thursday or something. I can't even remember, but I remember we loved watching the roast. So when I um, was growing up, I was like, well, that's comedy. Like I never saw stand up. So at 30, after I was a journalist for a while, and I put journalists in quotes because I was a half-assed interviewer for different magazines and newspapers. I was like, okay, I want to do stand-up. I don't know how it's done. How do I do this? So, uh, you know, I took a little comedy class. I started gravitating towards, you know, talking to the audience because the roasts were kind of my influence. So now that I look back, I go, oh, I'm so glad we watched those as a family because that's the only part that really seeped in. Very interesting. So you did journalism and you worked for a couple different magazines. What about that interested you as you were growing up? Obviously, you know, you had the Dean Martin roast, a little bit of comedy influence, but you decided to go and do journalism. What about that interested you and made you want to go that direction as opposed to maybe something different? Well, honestly, I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I went to Boston College because you just, if you're smart, Back in those days, you didn't take a gap year. You didn't, you know, uh, kind of take a year off. You worked, you went right to college. So I went to Boston College for a year, and I think I majored in something really terrible, like accounting or some stupid thing. And I'm like, I didn't even understand it. I didn't know what it was about. Like, I was just like, ah, it's safe. Um, But then I started by some blessing happened. I met members of the hockey team and they were really, really nice guys. They weren't rapey or me too or anything. And they, I started editing their papers for them and correcting their, their grammar and their writing. And I was like, God, I'm really good at proofreading and copy editing and writing. And I was like, I got to follow that. And I said, Oh, I bet I could major in writing nonfiction. Um, And I was like, oh, journalism, I could go to Syracuse for journalism. And uh, I applied to Syracuse University, went there. They have a very famous school called Newhouse School of Journalism. And I went there. So I think it all just led to that. And then I started seeing that I was a pretty good interviewer and writer because I had so much curiosity about people. And I loved that. And then wrote for some heavy metal magazines in the 80s. Um, Just really enjoyed the hell out of interviewing bands and heroes of mine. I was like, oh, this is cool. But then at 30, it was like, okay, I'm never going to be great at this. I'm fine at it. But what do I really want to do? And comedy had been brewing there for a little while. So I go, let me try it once. If I suck, I'm not going to do 
luckily the first open mic went well and I was like, Oh, this is meant to be. And I just kept going. Yeah. And I believe your big standout moment was the roast of Chevy Chase, right? That's where you kind of really people started to know who you were or did people kind of know that? I don't, actually, to be, to be honest, nobody knew who I was. Um, during, I think the Chevy Chase roast, Obviously, my first TV thing, the Friars Club, thank God, was instrumental in pushing me onto that roast. They pushed Comedy Central to let me do it, and because uh, at the time they were co-producing the roast. And the thing about that was was that uh, after that, I got noticed by thank God, I somehow got noticed by Howard Stern. And I would say, really, the big thing that sort of made me get a little bit of fame and noteworthiness was that Howard had me on for the first time and people started knowing who I was. And it was the first time I ever like went on and I, um, you know, I, I told them all the jokes that I didn't, that they didn't broadcast on the roast. I, uh, you know, told them stories that happened behind the scenes about Chevy because at the time he hated Chevy. Um, so I think then it just started to build, but it was still not where I was playing theaters or selling places out what really happened was I started doing more TV and the Pam Anderson roast was the one that everybody watched. And that is when everything exploded for me because I started selling places out and going, wow, I'm an actual theater comic instead of, I won't be banging around the clubs for the rest of my life. It's interesting that you say that, that Pam Anderson roast, by the way, unbelievable. (laughs) Like I'm just sitting here right now. Yeah, I'm just sitting here right now, just pieces of that are going through my mind, uh, you know, like a film strip. So you did the Pam Anderson roast, and then this thing started going from there. One question about comedy that I've always found so interesting, where is that distinction made from your perspective of a, a club comic to a theater comic? Is there a big distinction in the community, or like at what point does that part switch if that makes any sense well what it is it's a resume changer so basically and it's also a money changer like why go to a city and play five shows or six shows for the same money as one show at a theater so five shows in a club is torture you're fighting with chicken wings (laughs) you're competing against two drink minimums in a theater, there's more, it's a higher stakes for the audience to pay attention because they paid more. You're making more money. And a lot of it is a badge of honor. A lot of it is where you go, oh my God, it's like, it's like graduating. So it's like graduating from college. So I got very lucky um, because what happened was did the Pam Anderson roast and I show up at my gig and I had no idea it had even aired yet. So I show up, I'm doing a week at the Punchline in Sacramento and they said, it's sold out. Can we add two shows? And I go, why is it sold out? Like, who's here? And they're like, you are. I'm like, but who cares? Did something happen? They're like, no, the Pam Anderson roast was on and everyone called and reserved tickets. So we added two or even three shows that week. And I remember then uh, promoters like Live Nation and stuff started taking note. And I would do like these theaters all over. And um it's interesting. Once you get on that theater train, there's a lot more uh, pressure to sell tickets. But, you know, for I think 10 years, it was like really like bang, 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 bang. And it felt great because you're just like flying in, flying out. It's exhausting. 
but who cares? You're making great money. You're doing a great show. You're getting paid great money. And you're like, oh, I, I finally made that leap. And it does feel really good from an ego perspective and also from a, um, a cash perspective and also a real-life perspective because then you can have more free time. You could be at home with your family. You could be at home with your, you know, house and your kids and your friends. So it's to me, it was sort of a win-win. Yeah, and and I've gone to that punchline. It's a small club, and uh, mm. you know the interesting thing is, is that I feel like comedy club shows is it more of just an opportunity for a comic to work out their material before they do a special? Because now it seems like everybody has a special on Netflix. You know the new comedy, well, at, the new Comedy Central, or whatever you want to call it. Well, here's the deal: comedy clubs are fantastic, and Sacramento Punchline and Sacramento, excuse me, um, the other Punchline in San Francisco, fantastic clubs, like literally A-list clubs. There's probably probably top, those are two of the top clubs in the country with Carolines, um, the Atlanta Punchline. Like, there's a lot of really good clubs. And those, I think, primarily are for guys who aren't selling theater tickets yet, but are the headliners are really effing good, who just haven't gotten that break yet. Plus, comics like at the level of, say, when I did my last special, I did go back and try out a ton of material at those at various places. So clubs, to me, good clubs are a freaking badge of honor. That's, again... If you get to play a punchline or as a headline or a comedy, you know, a, a comedy works in Denver or something like that, that's a resume changer too. The fact is, though, a lot of times people get stuck in the club system and they never make that leap for whatever the universe has planned for them. They aren't able to parlay it into that theater um, experience. But you know what? Um, we don't always get what we want. We do get what we need in life. And um, I was very lucky to be able to ride that train for so long. Yeah, very long. So you're coming towards the end of your career, or the, it, maybe I wouldn't even call it that. You've been performing, you're performing. At what point did you go, I've had enough of this, and I'm um, ready for a change to do something different? Like, what was that key point in your life for that? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing with people is they think it's going to be a lightning bolt that they need to make a change. Like they think that the universe, that some voice from the heavens is going to open up and they're going to have to, you know, uh, have a lightning bolt hit them. Mine was like I started noticing that it wasn't as much fun anymore. And I started noticing I'd come off stage and my openers would be like, oh, my God, that was great. And I'd be like, it was fine. Like, it's fine. And they're like, but all the people stood up and I'm like, it was fine. Like, uh, like I didn't care that much. And I'm like, wait a minute. I don't want a career that pays well, but I don't care that much. I want to really, really have joy. And the thing is, with comics, they're so used to wallowing in depression and wallowing in sadness and hurt that they forget there is supposed to be some joy involved in your life. Hmm. Like, I had an unjoyful character on stage, but I wanted joy, and I always brought joy. So I'm like, you know what? I think it's time to phase this out. I'm going to listen to that voice inside me. And I was able to then go have this five-year plan where I had talked to my business manager and I said, look, if I don't work anymore, when can I retire? And we made this plan and I stuck to it, saved a lot of money, thank God. And um, then I was like, oh, I want to do this storytelling show and this off-Broadway play and these things that just tickle me. 
and bring the audience a sense of, you know, story and message that's still funny. So the shows I do now, the storytelling show I do, I'm like, oh, this is cool because I get to still make people laugh probably at a rate of, you know, 10, every 10 seconds there's a big laugh, but there's a message behind it. So I'm able to combine what I want to do with what the audience wants so it's nobody's losing here. So I think that's how you just start to notice when you need to make a change. And now I don't want to bury the headline, but you are a life coach, which I just think is the coolest thing ever. And I have to be honest with you, you know, you have inspired me as somebody who who does podcasting and has the opportunity to talk to some great people because I got to a point in my life where I was doing this, I was interviewing all these people and I lost my joy. I just it became like yeah. another interview, you know, it was like, "Oh my god, I'm talking to this person." And all my podcasting friends were like, "Oh, that is so cool. How did you get that interview and I was like oh you know I just emailed and talked to their publicist and we had a great conversation and I found myself just going through the motions in an interview and not emotionally connecting with my guest and I think they probably picked up on it maybe but I go back and listen to some of my older episodes and I'm like man I just feel like that I was not very engaged and I took like a six-month break but then I yeah. I heard your interview. You did an interview with Jordan Harbinger and you were talking yeah. about all these different things. And I'll be honest with you, and I'm not just saying this because we're recording, but it's true. I was like, you know what? Like, I need to find that joy and that passion that I had before because I feel like I'm really missing out. And, you know, honestly, this is a huge landmark interview for me talking to you because I've had some amazing people. So, Thank you for externally doing that because it just was a huge thing for me. And I really. Oh, no. I mean, I, I, that's the goal of doing all those interviews and all that, you know, anything I do is to just go, well, if it helps one person, that's great. But I love that you noticed that that joy was lacking before it showed in your performance. So that's what I wanted to be conscious of is to get out of stand up before it showed. Um, because, look, I'm a good actor. I know how to act like I'm having fun, even if I'm not. But pretty soon it would have started to show. So what's good is you noticed it. And um, you know, even now, like I'm, um, you know, part of the reason I agreed to do this interview is because um, I'm doing cameos now for Feeding America. So um, I want to publicize that I want people to book a cameo with me so that 100% of the money goes to feed people. And uh, I noticed the other day I was doing so many in a row that the joy left for the day. And I go, okay, you're going to do the rest tomorrow. So we just have to even notice that. Like mm. I taped about 30, 30 of them. And then I was like, Ugh. and I go, oh, okay. You wake up tomorrow, you put on hair and makeup again, and you freaking do it then. So it's just noticing and then bringing into our life what we want to bring in. So how did you decide to be a life coach? Like, I'm just curious what what sparked in you? Because I think there are a couple other comics that are doing it or something similar, maybe. And uh, I, I just find that such a huge career shift. What was it for you that made you go, you know what, I can do this and I want to help and inspire people? Well, I think I wanted some tools for bait that would probably help me with the Q&As after the show. 
because I was finding that the Q&As after my storytelling show were a lot about food and body image issues after my weight loss and all that. A lot of them were about how do they make a career change. And I was like, I need to have some tools so that I don't just sort of be prescribing things to people that just work for me. So um, I didn't enjoy coaching one-on-one, meaning like, you know, having coaching calls with people because I like people to change. And that's my own failing is that I want you to change when I want you to change. But I really wanted to give sound coaching and advice after shows. So I did these sort of this sort of nine-month training and it was really hard, but really insightful into what makes me tick and what people really need. So I didn't just want to do anything half-assed. And it would have been half-assed to do these sort of coaching Q&As after shows if I didn't have tools to work with. So I think it was, it was smart to do. Again, it's not going to, at this point, be like, oh, Lisa Lampanelli, book private sessions, because I just that doesn't make me happy. And I don't think it serves anybody if I'm not happy. But after shows, at least when people say, hey, what are some steps to changing my life, then I can really help them. So at this point, you're not necessarily doing like Skype calls and, and one-on-one sessions per se. Um, and- no, I tried it. I tried it as practice because that's what you do. You get practice clients. And what I would do is I would charge them, I think, $25 or whatever they could afford and then donate it to, at the time, I donated it to whatever charity they wanted. But now I'm just like, that's not for me at this point. You never know. And um, it's just like, okay. I can now use that as a tool to, you know, give, I wouldn't say advice, but tools after a show when people are asking me, hey, what do I need to do to fix my relationship with food? What do I do to fix my relationship with my body or with my life or my career? Wow. And I think that's probably great for fans, too, to connect with you on a different level because... Some of them are probably familiar with, you know, the com- the comic, Lisa, and then now you're doing these individual type shows. So the last question I have is once we get out of this madness to circle back around to that, are you going to continue to do those shows uh, wherever the country yeah. will allow you? And hopefully we can gather. Uh- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Luckily, what, what happened was I got an amazing producer, a Broadway producer, who really believes in the show, and she had us booked all over. Unfortunately, two of the shows had to be canceled because of quarantine, but we're rescheduling them. And um, we have two weeks in Chicago coming up at the Broadway Theater, which is spectacular. I'm like, that's to me, that's a real resume changer right there for me because it's so legitimate. And um, it's a fantastic show. It's called Losing It, and it's really funny, but very heartfelt too. So I always say it's funny how a lot of the women come for the heartfelt stuff and the guys come because their wives drag them, but then they're like, dude, it was super funny. Like, you still said the C word. And I'm like, I know, dude, I'm like, still Lisa Lampanelli. Come on. <laughs> so what I like is that, you know, the shows, we have a conference call later today about different markets that we have offers in. So, yeah, I'm going to try to do that show as much as I can because I just love the message. And it's really self-acceptance and finding really, you know, your path in life and that change is okay and that you're okay the way you are. So I love that show. I also, um, you know, I just really like doing these different things that come up that are really cute to me. And it's a cute opportunity to get in touch with people on a, you know, after the show on a one-on-one basis. 
Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that the guys probably show up expecting, you know, <laughs> roast version of Lisa. <laughs> However, yeah, some of them... <laughs> it, yeah, like I always say when I'm promoting the show in the press, I always go, okay, if you want to laugh, come to the show. If you want a little heart, come to the show. If you want me to insult you, just wait till after the show. <laughs> Do you have people come up to you and just ask you to roast them? I imagine that you have to at this point in your career. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Even now, like on these cameos that I'm doing for Feeding America, people are like, um, my wife's turning 40. Could you roast her ass? Here are some facts. And I'm like, you know what? Because it's for charity, I totally do it. Because come on, you know, 30 bucks in the pocket of a charity is, is worth me uh, calling her names. But yeah, yeah. Hey, you know, sometimes after shows, I, I resist. But sometimes I'm in the mood to have a little lighthearted fun. So you never know what's going to happen. Very cool. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for doing this. My show, it's huge. If people want to learn more about you, obviously, they probably already know who you are. But if they want to connect with you, I know your website is super cool. It's very flashy. And you have an option for people to to kind of connect with you that way. How how can people do that? Yeah, go to lisalampanelli.com. If you can't spell it, I can't help you. You're not <laughs> fit to be my fan. You're just banned from being a fan. And uh, also my uh, where I really like to do a lot of my work now is Instagram because it's just so much fun. And I could put up pictures of my dog and me being an idiot. And um, so that's Lisa Lampanelli, at Lisa Lampanelli. And also uh, the cameos, there's a link in my bio at the, um, on, on the Instagram to uh, if you want to support feedingamerica.org and give some food to people during this time and forever, uh, that would be great. Book a cameo with me and I'll call you the C word. <laughs> all right. And all that information will be available in the show notes. Lisa Lampanelli, it was an honor. Thank you for being here today. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you, buddy. God bless. You too. Thanks for choosing to join in to this week's episode. Be sure to follow the show on social media. Brett's Open Mic on all platforms, and to subscribe to the show on your player of choice, which is absolutely free. Finally, please consider sharing this episode with a friend. Every little bit helps. Until next time, cheers! Cheers!